Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our watch through of The Magicians, looking at Season 1, Episode 10, Homecoming. So, Britt, could you start us off with a recap of what happens in this episode, please? So Penny is trapped in the Netherlands, which is a space between other worlds. He contacts Quentin as Quentin sleeps and discovers that while he's only been gone for six hours, it's been six weeks back on Earth. To help Penny, Alice, and Quentin travel to Alice's parents' house, and they find out that they're going to have to do a little sex spell to help Penny get out of the Netherlands. Yeah, they are. As Penny's running away from people who work for the Beast, he stumbles upon the Library of the Netherlands. Penny meets a librarian there, and she gives him a chapter from Martin Chatwin's book with information about the Beast. Meanwhile, Quentin and Alice are trying to resolve some relationship issues to cast the beacon to help Penny and finally get there. Well, Elliot and Margot are off on their own little adventure because Margot's ex-boyfriend constructed a living golem of her that was draining her life force. They get into a little bit of an argument as Elliot is high the entire time and not very helpful to Margot. Then we move to some more productive people, Julia and Katie, who both happen to meet Richard and have been brought into the Free Trader group. Joining Richard's project, which he explains, is to summon a god. And then the episode ends with Penny, unfortunately, traveling back from the sex beacon right into the room with Alice and Quentin, because that's just his luck. He comes in right as they do. Oh my god. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's head into our first segment then. What magic moments stood out to you this episode? Basically, everything regarding Penny and the Netherlands. I love seeing how sharp and resourceful and Mm. capable he is. First, he tries to read the mind of this person that he's meeting because he's like, well... I don't know anything about where I am or this person, so it's a good option to make sure they don't have nefarious uh, intentions, which obviously they did. Then he finds a stick and draws a sigil in the gravel there to incept Quentin's dream, and he's smart. He's like, I'm not going to keep traveling because there's three moons here and I could kill myself and I don't know the circumstances for this place. Mm -hmm. And so casting things is more dangerous. And yeah, just seeing him so much on his own in this episode, but like still getting information and help from different people. Also getting a tiny glimpse into him also being a geek. (laughs) Because the first thing he says when he sees Eve, the the magician in the Netherlands, is he does the Spock fingers and says, I come in peace. Mm -hmm. Which he would never do if Quentin was around. Totally. (laughs) But when he's on his own, uh, we get to see a little bit more of him. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, and we see him as he's exploring the Netherlands, as he's exploring the library asking important questions too, like Mm -hmm. asking questions where he is not just 
overwhelmed with curiosity, but asking questions that are going to help him understand where he is, how to get home, what he needs to know, what he needs to know about the beast. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate how savvy he is in this episode. And he's still going to be annoyed and exasperated, but he's more annoyed at the bureaucracy and the process than he is at the people the hunting him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or the people hunting him. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah, basically my magic moments, Penny. Yeah. I've already mentioned his outfit because he was wearing the same one last episode, so don't need to talk about that here. <laughs> but what about you? What are your magic moments? Yeah, I, I was also thinking a lot about the Netherlands. First off, just the cinematography of mm-hmm. him while he's in the Netherlands. Basically, every shot is from a skewed angle. Mm-hmm. It's never at a direct angle where Penny would just be upright. He's always diagonal. And so we really get this feeling of things being topsy-turvy, things being mm-hmm. off-kilter as he's going around and we understand and we get a feel the same kind of idea of being lost as Penny has, which I really appreciate. Totally. And the the color schemes are very different mm-hmm. too, but it doesn't feel the same as like New York where Julia has been operating so much. Yeah, this isn't drab. This is dangerous. Yeah, this is otherworldly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that the actor who plays Eve, the first kind of marauder that he comes into contact with, does a really good job of helping to play into that, this kind of unknowingness of the place where she has this friendliness that is always just slightly sinister. Mm-hmm. Even as she's talking about how Santa Claus is a really friendly guy, you're always, you know, at least I was always like, ooh, there's just something you don't trust mm-hmm. about her. And so that kind of is how Penny, I think, is thinking about the entire place that, oh, there's no direct dangers yet, but I can't trust what's around me. And then when he enters the library, it has some visual elements that show that it's still in the Netherlands, even though it is such a different kind of location. Mm -hmm. It still has those skewed camera angles. And then there's this different kind of infinity. Instead of it being infinity of fountains, Mm -hmm. it's book stacks that go on forever. Infinity of knowledge. I know. It's so overwhelming, but I'm like, ooh. (laughs) Absolutely. The raven climb is just like, (gasps) But it also just makes me think about what makes good and bad library curation. Because Mm. all this information is put without any help about how old or new the the pieces of knowledges are. You know, Mm -hmm. like... A good yeah, library is going to have shelves that say, you know, new releases or popular places. Yeah, we didn't really see any, like, section titles, did we? Yeah. Which, for me, it makes it seem like more of an archive than a library. It's not a place for that's supposed to be accessible to people who need to go there. It's something to hold on to knowledge. Mm-hmm. And they do a good job of that, you know, as we see with her saying, well, you can't take out a book without these kinds of bureaucratic steps. Mm. So yeah, I think that just the set design of that does a lot to kind of start laying the groundwork of what the library is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that you would need the help of a librarian to mm-hmm. do anything, even once you have a library card. I mean, maybe you could just look around, but like, if it's infinite, <laughs> you would need a person to help filter that information to you. So... 
their choices and perspectives on what you want or need are going to be significant in the knowledge you get. Absolutely. And then one final magic moment is just we have to applaud the naming of the Margolem. Oh, of course. Because it's just perfect and amazing. Yeah. Uh, We'll talk more about the Margolem as we go, I'm sure, but just that name is chef's kiss. Yeah. Even while completely high, Elliot comes up with the perfect name. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But let's continue into our next segment on setting and society. Yeah, I mean, kind of like what you were mentioning, just that the Netherlands shows the vastness of the universe Mm -hmm. and also of magic in the universe. The fact that Eve says, like, oh, you're you're a person from Earth. Whenever you come, you always have interesting magic, you know, Mm -hmm. to think about other not only other places like we'd heard about before when pete mentioned to julia the molly desert has like some just amazing what was it object magic i don't remember what sort of magic it was but um so so we've gotten the idea that different societies cultures on earth would have different sorts of magic which totally makes sense but now seeing like all of these fountains and thinking about the magic that could exist and does exist in all of these places and then obviously we're introduced to this planet that joe comes from where all magic is sex magic Mm -hmm. poor ace people if they exist there yeah (laughs) but yeah just seeing how much how vast that is and then how vast the knowledge of that is with the library. It was just like such a great way to open up the world to endless possibilities, mm-hmm. which the the rest of the show will play in some of those possibilities. So yeah, I, I just thought it was great. Yeah. And the idea of there are all the books that were ever written all the books that were never written, Mm -hmm. and all the books of all people who ever lived. Yeah, it's just like (laughs) an overwhelming idea. And also so interesting. And you see Quentin, Alice, and Elliot's books there, and you're just like, I want it one. And then Penny found his, too. Mm -hmm. And then you see that Elliot has two volumes, which is is just such a wonderful detail. Because the the story is like thus far presented so much as Quentin's story. Mm-hmm. And then now you have Alice, who's the romantic interest. So you would think like they're most important. And then obviously there's Julia having this kind of other storyline. But then we look at the reality of their lives and how much more Elliot has done. Yeah. Uh, that is important or significant or, you know recorded for some reason so yeah just a really cool little detail to add more to the world and also setting up what's to come yeah absolutely and it's really interesting because it kind of sets up the library as having this kind of omniscience Mm -hmm. of knowing everything knowing even things that haven't happened but could have happened yeah and the kind of power that comes with that and Again, that just doesn't feel like a library to me. A library is something that is about borrowing 
information, mm-hmm. uh, about obtaining information. And here, that doesn't seem to be the goal or the mission of this establishment. But yeah, it's just, I think, a, a, a really great visualization of this kind of omniscience, this kind of knowing of everything, how that can still leave gaps in knowledge um, or make knowledge inaccessible. Absolutely. But it's interesting, too, because our modern libraries and the way that we think of it being invested in by state governments and, you know, stuff Mm -hmm. to have libraries so that people in every city have access to resources and knowledge and yeah the the ability also to make knowledge more accessible for people who don't have the financial means to buy books Mm -hmm. and and things like that but then if you think about like libraries historically (laughs) yeah a lot of it is about just hoarding knowledge totally it's really not about accessibility at all let's think of historically beauty and the beast yeah yeah that's a good point (laughs) that library that any ravenclaw kid who saw that movie was like oh (laughs) like you know it's like i want a sliding ladder in a huge library like Mm -hmm. that like that's the pinnacle right but that's how i think a lot of libraries have existed where it's just wealthy people who have the leisure time and the ability to read you know that would amass books and just have it there for their pleasure or to maintain their status and privilege absolutely yeah in western society the idea of a public library is less than 150 years old <laughs> um so you're, you're absolutely right that that this harkens back, I guess, to uh, these more private libraries, which were the way that libraries existed in Western society beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. And then the last thing, speaking of rich, privileged people, <laughs> is just this parents' Roman orgy party. Yep. Of course, rich magicians would be doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems like most magicians could become wealthy if julia can have this spell to just take money out of an atm yeah but i'm sure there's also many 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 ways for magicians to amass wealth Mm -hmm. they could go somewhere where people mine gems and probably extract things quite easily you know uh, there's endless amounts of ways i'm sure then this is what people are doing with their money and privilege and power you Mm -hmm. know it's like just some hedonistic thing rather than trying to make the world a better place you know Mm -hmm. uh and so it's a great example of what a lot of people would be doing and the fact that alice comes from as i was talking about the previous episode like this privileged background sure Mm. there were problems some relational things growing up but like absolutely had any material things she needed and even when she's like oh my parents didn't teach me a lick of magic i'm like okay you were surrounded by magic yeah that is not the same in any way for somebody who grew up completely without it Mm -hmm. uh didn't even know it existed had no examples of it and then had to find it herself you know yeah yeah, and it also is really revealing of that society, just how many people are there 
Mm-hmm. Like, these people all are either magicians or people who know that magic exists, mm-hmm. you know? And it's this big crowd of people. I like how there's a few people who are in modern, like, suits or dress, <laughs> but almost everyone else is in, like, togas and things like that. <laughs> and it just shows how even these are not perfect kind of social gatherings or, or flawless or... They still have awkwardness involved mm-hmm. of people not being sure what this is mm-hmm. or how to engage with it, even for those who are actually there as participants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very juxtaposed to what the free trader group is doing mm-hmm. with Richard. They're actually trying to help some people. I think that they're trying to help people in much too small of a scale. Agreed. Because these things are very personally motivated, but... I think at the same time, especially having seen Richard and some of his philosophy and and what he's been spending his time doing at this rehab facility, probably if they are able to summon this god and if the god can heal things or change the past or, you know, all of this, that they would probably very much go on to try to do things to help other people mm-hmm. uh, in similar circumstances. But... That's not what <laughs> the Quins are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's just to think about, he was a magic historian, right? And I'm sure if you were a magic historian, you would uh, spend your time quite differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was definitely one of my points here, is just how culturally appropriative this idea of Mm -hmm. historical magic is where it's not about understanding the past in its own terms but it's about taking the past and utilizing it for your own purposes uh oh we celebrate all of the roman holidays (laughs) and it's like no you don't you appropriate those holidays you don't Mm -hmm. understand those celebrations as they exist in those contexts because you don't believe what a lot of Romans believe. Exactly. <laughs> you you perform this, and that's not a way of engaging in, in historical study. You know, history <laughs> is about trying to understand the past. But if I tried to start identifying myself or living my own life the way that indigenous people of North America live their lives, like, that would be so disingenuous and inappropriate and... Mm-hmm. appropriative, even more extreme as people continue to live in those ways. And I don't know how many people nowadays continue to celebrate those ancient Roman traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps there are some of them, and understandably, they would be upset at seeing something <laughs> like this. But yeah, I just, uh, I find it really, really gross looking at history in this way. And I think that the fact that this is so hedonistic mm-hmm. is a way of really illustrating how problematic that is. Yeah, especially when, if you think about Roman history, you cannot separate that from imperialism Mm -hmm. and... Slavery. Exactly, how people had parties that weren't like this, but were like this, Mm -hmm. off of the backs of slaves and exploited people and oppressed people. And, I mean, not that that's what they're not doing. You know, they're, they're... Totally. They're doing that, too, because the people who made the food, the costumes, you know, everything that goes into that. But, like, 
that's not being acknowledged. It's just like... The privileges it, that come with being elite in those historical areas. Exactly. It's just for the fun, the theme, the excitement. You know, it's yeah. not... The people who are attending this party aren't all magic historians, you know? And so totally. it's just like a gimmick. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, m- maybe he does some serious scholarship outside of these parties but you know it's questionable mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you what are your setting in society points the other thing that i had on my mind were the locals in the netherlands like eve these people who are now working for the beast but who the librarian describes as people who are like custodians in the library who lost their jobs for some reason they were fired from the library and started working for the Beast because they didn't have many other opportunities living out in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really, really interesting to think about how people who have fewer opportunities often, because of their desperation, end up doing riskier activity, criminal activity, you know, other kinds of things because they have lost the ability to survive on legitimate means Mm -hmm. um, or quote-unquote legitimate means. You know, in our society, low-income neighborhoods often have greater crime in large part because those neighborhoods don't have access to quality education, access to good jobs, access to, you know, these other kinds of things that would allow someone to have a livelihood outside of criminal activity. Again, not to mention that. activities that are criminalized. Yeah, like, really good point, because, of course, I would argue that every large corporation in the world participates (laughs) in criminal activity. Oh, no, but their cases are civil cases. (laughs) No, but, I mean, it's a huge thing, right? It's like, you don't pay your workers, and for some reason, that lawsuit goes to civil court, Mm -hmm. not criminal court. Yeah, or you participate in smuggling, because that's the best way of making money off of transportation of your goods, right? Oh, mm-hmm. sure, I'm transporting this luxury car, but I don't want to have it taxed in a port as a luxury vehicle. So I'm going to say it's a collection of automobile parts. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that gets taxed at a lower rate. You know, those kinds of things are constantly happening yeah. and are just the rules of business, essentially. But then stealing a bag of chips, that's criminalized. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, uh... Eh, my mess. So it's, uh, I think, just interesting seeing this, you know, if, if you want to bring a Marxist perspective mm-hmm. into this, you know, a labor-focused perspective, <laughs> where the library is the establishment that has the power. They are the employer. And when they no longer employ these people, they have to turn to other forms of employment, other forms of making their livelihood. And in this case, one of the other opportunities they have is to work for the beast. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, if they are working for someone who wants to murder people, if they're willing to murder themselves, like these are bad things. These are not <laughs> things I'm saying that's okay. But the fact that the library themselves fired these people and gave them no other access to a livelihood, I mm-hmm. think is also a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to bring in a segment of our Fillory and Further section where we compare what we are watching in the show to how these 
same ideas were communicated in the books. Yeah, so the main thing we wanted to talk about is just the free trader group mm -hmm. with Julia and Katie and Richard. This is a group that Julia gets involved with in the books. There is Asmodeus, mm -hmm. which is a character that Katie is based on, which is clear because that's what her screen name is, right? Yeah. And Vicious Cersei, which is the name that Julia went by in the books. And so it's very much a part of that group. But at the same time, the aims of the group are so different. And also how Julia accessed the group mm -hmm. is so different. So this group in the books was very much more like super smart people who you had to... Solve a bunch of riddles and, and tests. Math, you know, really advanced math and, you know, do all of these different things to be able to access this group. But then as time went on, she discovers, oh, these people are magicians mm -hmm. too. And so they're like kind of different tests and different things that Julie has to go through in order to become like a member of this group. Mm -hmm. And once she is... Their aim is incredibly different. They still have the idea of magic coming from the gods. But where in the show, they're working their way to, quote, the energetic glass ceiling to shatter it. Mm -hmm. Really for more of healing purposes. Yeah. And in the book, it was very much not that way. It was like, we have studied all of the magic we possibly King have gotten our hands on we have mastered it all the next thing is that we should be able to become gods mm -hmm. yeah it's about power mm -hmm. not about helping themselves or others yeah that's just like a big difference and and i do like that change in the show mm -hmm. uh, especially to juxtapose other people who aren't always using their magical gifts to try to help others mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because yeah that's that's really important and I think especially for a character like Julia who in the show was kicked out of magic and it was such a painful thing for her and she's gone through so much to try to claw her way towards magic and then having this traumatic thing happen and her feeling regret and really looking at herself and the decisions she's made and then trying to change, I think is a much better trajectory for her character in, in a character that you want to like root for. I, I mean, I like Julia in the books, certainly, mm -hmm. but it's, it's just a different journey uh, with different motivations. Yeah. So, so I like that they did that and it's great to have just the really cool magic that they're doing, you know, the reverse entropy spell, this time magic, you know, and then these personal things too, with something that had to do with memory when you saw like snow mm. flying around and yeah, you can kind of see the vulnerability and the personalness that magic can have. I also like that it gives the context, which is true in the books as well, that like, they are the best magicians that they know. Yeah. To just see that, like, these people who are so magically gifted were kicked out of great bells and wouldn't have always had the same access. True. It's also interesting because 
the way that this is framed, I think also makes that idea of them being these hyper-powerful magicians a little bit less clear, because in the books, they have this massive compound, this, you know, villa villa that they (laughs) operate out of, and, you know, everything's taken care of for them, and in the show, they're just operating out of Julia's apartment, (laughs) which... For me, like, it doesn't sound like these massively powerful magicians would just be operating out of her apartment, you know? You'd think that they'd have some more structure that they've been able to maintain because, yeah, again, it seems so easy for them to have money and everything. Well, yeah, but maybe that's the point. It shows that their priorities are different. Precisely. And they seem just more of a community than we've seen, I think, in any other circumstance, Mm -hmm. even though there's only a handful of them. And even though many of them go by these online names, there still is care for one another. There still is understanding of one another. And yeah, it it highlights, I think, these these fascinating differences from their representation in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's head into our next segment, themes and schemes. What did you bring this week? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about Katie and her process of getting involved with this group. She met Richard and through that, through engaging with more magic, through engaging with a community of people who, yeah, were supportive and very involved and everything, like she turned from her anger at Marina and her plans for revenge mm-hmm. to do something healthier. Not to say that she's not angry at Marina at all, but that impulse for revenge to try to kill Marina because Marina killed her mom. Yeah, you don't feel that in her. She's still not happy or comfortable with Julia initially, Mm -hmm. but as they're working together, as they talk a little bit about it, even if it's just very small, you know, you see Katie's pain over the situation, but like she says... This is better than dying or going to jail Mm -hmm. if she had gone to try to kill Marina. And so seeing that turning away from that revenge has helped Katie and Julia reconcile and also involvement in something that's bigger than just herself. That's a community that is healthier and more constructive. Uh, Yeah, I think it kind of goes into a theme of just going and killing someone, even if that person is a problematic and violent person, Mm -hmm. isn't the answer. It isn't just going to fix everything. It isn't just going to make things better. Because, yeah, in the end, if Katie had gone to try to do that, what would that (laughs) have done? You know, that wouldn't have fixed anything. It Mm -hmm. wouldn't bring her mom back, you know, any of this. And then kind of going off of what Quentin was saying at the very end of the last episode about just wanting to find Plover and kill him Mm. is, I think, seeing how Katie is handling this situation now is, yeah, driving home this idea that, like, no, just killing the object of your anger, even if that person is horrible in a lot of ways, even if they've done a lot of damage, even if they will continue to do damage doesn't mean that that's just like the easy answer. Mm -hmm. 
And then the other theme that I think is really interesting and I kind of want to think more about is like when Penny is about to open his own book in the library. The librarian says people who read their books often discover they don't like the main character and are rarely happy with how it ends. Ooh, such a great line. <laughs> just, yeah, just such a great line. And it's something that is difficult when you when you deal with stories because mm -hmm. the more realistic people make characters often the less likable they can be mm -hmm. uh even as before i've complained about book quentin or we've complained about this quentin the show quentin some of the ways that he yeah is just very problematic and selfish and these different things and so i think that this show does a really good job at showing the flaws. Mm -hmm. Even though we separated from it, watching it can be amused, can love characters, can really enjoy it. We can also completely understand why the characters themselves, if they were just reading a book of what they were doing and thinking, would not like themselves mm -hmm. and, and would not be satisfied with their ends you know yeah, so it's yeah. uh i think it's just it's a great idea and uh we'll see if it pops up more yeah i get it makes me feel like oh maybe my self-hate is just that i have a more objective view of myself <laughs> than most other people do and people who are confident do maybe that's just what it is <laughs> <laughs> really i'm just better than other people exactly. in knowing i'm worse exactly precisely <laughs> Oh, you understand me so well. <laughs> I know, I do. <laughs> but what about you? What are the themes and schemes you were noticing? The major theme that really spoke to me this episode was just a theme of healthy and unhealthy relationships. Mm. That is often seen through the lens of sex, but I think that there's wider things going on here as well. Obviously, we see this sex party going on at <laughs> Alice's dad's. Yeah. And her relationship with her mother kind of have made her have some difficulties with understanding healthy relationships. But I think it's really interesting how we get introduced to Alice and Quentin, and Quentin in particular in this episode, through his sex dream. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's because... talk about the problematic. <laughs> exactly. Because I think it's a really good example of Quentin struggling in some ways, to reconcile his problematic view of women mm. with what he wants to think about his views of women, where he talks about how he respects them both so much. As one of them is literally dressed as a sex slave mm -hmm. from Star Wars. Yeah. And, you know, there's this line about how the sex dream almost passed the Bechdel test. I know. Which is like... So wrong in so many ways. Well, exactly. I think it's it's all very surface level in Quentin wanting to feel like there is more to this sexual desire than there actually is. Mm -hmm. Because this is his dream, there is no conversation they could have that's outside of his male gaze. That's not being <laughs> exactly. done for his pleasure. Yeah, so it can never pass the Bechdel test Precisely. because he's involved. Yeah. <laughs> And on a more meta level, 
the show chose to do this as well. It chose mm-hmm. to dress these women these ways, have them kiss, you know, two characters who I don't think have ever had a scene together before. You know, this is the first time those actors are interacting with one another, you know, on on camera. It's just the show is also choosing to sexualize and objectify these women, mm-hmm. even as there are these kinds of narrative elements to it. And yeah. so I think that the characters, the show itself, they're all grappling with these themes of objectification. And that, I think, becomes one issue with sex and relationships and, and examples of unhealthy relationships. You know, and this goes to a even further extent when we look at the Margolem mm-hmm. and a man who literally creates a physical copy of someone for their own pleasure yeah. after they broke up. How awful all of that is. Mm-hmm. And then with Alice and Quentin needing to perform sex magic for this <laughs> spell, I do think it's fascinating to see them have to engage with these tensions of, okay, if we have to perform this spell, you know, we've, we've learned already about collaborative magic and how you really have to kind of share circumstances in many ways. In this case, they have to share an orgasm. But that orgasm, I think, becomes a symbol for them having to be on the same page sexually in a way they haven't been at all so far. Whether that, I think, is entirely appropriate is another question, (laughs) uh, because I think that sex is so much more than just an orgasm, and we, as a culture, problematize orgasms by making them, putting them up on this pedestal, especially in regards to PIV sex. But outside of that, I think that seeing Quentin dealing with his insecurities about not always being able to make Alice orgasm the way that he wants to be able to. And Alice dealing with the kind of people-pleasingness of, well, I know that you have these insecurities and I don't want to have to deal with them. And I'm so used to having to, or or see, I've seen so many people who use love and sex in these manipulative ways that, you know, she feels more comfortable lying to him. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's people-pleasing. I think it's man-pleasing. I mean, Because true. I don't think in any other aspect of her life she really ever people-pleases. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. And so, like, I don't understand because I'm just like, why would you lie to some man to protect their ego? I, I don't understand it personally, but I know that that's a common thing. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> On the one hand, I appreciate that they bring it up so it's not just like, oh, and everything works perfectly Mm -hmm. and everything is easy and blah, 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 because like that's not how things are in relationships the vast majority of the time. At the same time, I'm like, and then they just worked it out super Mm, quickly. Like that's not how, like if you have emotional or mental blocks in certain ways or if you're not comfortable with certain things like you don't just like instantaneously oh we've had one conversation about it and now it's like now everything's easy after a couple bad conversations about it exactly like it's just not i mean and yeah and there's a whole other trust issue like Mm -hmm. if you're lying to me about this are you lying to me about anything else and you know it's like things that should matter yeah (laughs) you know but i mean we'll we'll very easily see that their relationship is not a perfect relationship but i've seen in some things where it's like they do bring up the issues or incompatibilities or difficulties couples can have sexually but then like it's always resolved within the episode which Mm -hmm. i just feel is like 
also problematically building into. It's like they're trying to be less problematic about the narrative of sex that's out in society, but then they're only... Not entirely accomplishing it. Yeah, they're just like a tiny... They're they're addressing it a tiny bit, but then they're also maybe building in a new problematic aspect. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, everything's just fixable or easy or like things don't change or fluctuate or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Agreed. And that kind of is my ultimate end is like, yeah, so there's some interesting things going on here. Do I think it's entirely successful? Definitely not. But it is a theme that I really see undergirding a lot of what's happening in this episode. How many of these characters are trying to manage relationships that have unhealthy aspects to it. And making the episode about sexual relationships is a way of appealing to a audience where sex sells. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are capitalist motives and, and aspects of this too. So yeah. yeah. At the same time they're like, hey, these people are like in their early twenties. Is it realistic to not show some of these things? You know, so it's complicated. Exactly. <laughs> it's complicated. And I and I don't hold anything against any creators or anything like that necessarily. Yeah. But I think that yeah, th- this is what we do. Welcome yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> we deconstruct these, you know, complicated conversations uh and, and try to try to bring some insight to them. I will say if we're looking at this episode alone, the healthiest relationship that we see is between a woman and the woman who is involved in something that killed the other woman's mom. <laughs> like, they were able to reconcile, they are able to do this beautiful magic together, nothing about them is sexualized, you know, I mean... Totally. Uh, the, the, this is the healthy, healthy relationship example yeah. within the whole episode. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I did have it down in my notes... Penny can't aim, but he can very easily get into Quentin's mind. <laughs> what 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 about their relationship is healthy or unhealthy? <laughs> it's it's an easy door. <laughs> but let's head into our last major segment from another point of view. So what point of view did you bring to discuss? Yeah, so I wanted to go with a very interesting, very side character, which is Alice's mom, Stephanie. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I feel like in some ways she is, or it's like the intention is for it to just show, oh, it's been so difficult for Alice to Mm -hmm. grow up with her as her mom, and this is where part of her pain comes from and whatnot. But for me, personally, having had a very difficult relationship with my own mother, like, I'm... I'm not judging Stephanie. <laughs> like, I don't... Uh, do I think she does everything right or isn't problematic in any way? No. But, like, I was really kind of just feeling for her side of things where she wants to be called Stephanie. Alice doesn't want to and kind of rolls her eyes at that. It's really annoying <laughs> because, especially in... A world that, in American society right now specifically, that doesn't want to use gender pronouns mm. for people when, like, they're just asking for you to call them a name or to to use a pronoun that they feel represents them, that they feel okay with. 
that Mm -hmm. is comfortable for them rather than making them uncomfortable just because you want to, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, because you don't want to change something. And so even though when in the real world, sometimes I think it's kind of, it, it feels strange when people call their parents by their first names. And I've really only ever seen this in white circles. <laughs> and so like, if it's a parent that's asking for that, because that's what they feel comfortable with, they don't feel like mom or they don't feel like whatever this is, you know, maybe it has to do with what society says about that role. Maybe it just has to do with th- their gender. identity. You know, we, we don't know why Stephanie wants to be called Stephanie, but she does. And Alice doesn't want to give her that, which kind of bugs me. Mm-hmm. Just be respectful. If somebody wants you to call them something else, like I understand slipping up if like you've called them mom for a really long time, but like learn, try, try to understand why they want to be called this other name. Mm-hmm. And I also really love that Alice goes to Stephanie asking her for something. She wants help. And Stephanie, she's like, sure, push past everything you left on the table last time we spoke. Mm -hmm. Alice is just like, why can't you just let it go? Stephanie says, because we haven't finished discussing it yet. And I really sympathize with Stephanie here. Like, she's trying to communicate and actually have a relationship with her kid instead of, like, brushing their problems under the rug if this is the literally the last time she talked to her daughter and there was an argument i'm a person who doesn't really feel comfortable interacting with people when there are unresolved issues Mm -hmm. because i just feel like i'm being fake and i don't like being fake i don't like feeling dishonest and performing in, in a sense, I get why Stephanie is just like, no, you can't just like come to me, ask me for help when we were discussing a really serious emotional thing, the death of a family member here, and the discussion went badly, and then Alice just wants to ignore it, but like Stephanie can't do that, and partially because she feels judged. And it's not that she doesn't care about Charlie. Because you can, you can hear it in her voice when she says, it's not going to bring him back. So I don't want to know what happened to him. She says, it's a perfectly reasonable position in spite of how you judge me for it. Yeah, I was just thinking about how difficult it must be for her to be a parent who one of her kids died. Mm-hmm. And just feeling judged in how she's processing the death. It would be so terrible to have to process it and grieve it and continue to grieve it and try to continue to go on mm-hmm. with life to feel judged as she's trying to do that. Yeah, it just must be really difficult. Yeah. At the same time, you know, her not knowing that Charlie became a Niffin means that she can't grieve with her daughter specifically over those things. Mm -hmm. So in that way, she's not being there for her daughter. But it's also like, you can't tell someone how to grieve, you Mm -hmm. know? And, you know, maybe Stephanie's wiser in just accepting the fact that Charlie died. So she didn't have to go through the hopes of bringing him back Mm -hmm. to life and then 
see the disturbing version of him Mm -hmm. that Alice did and then having to grieve him all over again in new, different, terrible ways. And so, yeah, I I just, I I like how it shows, like, how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of funny because I feel like I'm on both sides of this because Mm -hmm. I'm a very, uh, I'm sure you listeners know, uh, I have, like, very strong convictions about certain things. Oh, yeah, I've noticed that, too. (laughs) I think sometimes in my passion and conviction for those things, other people can feel like... What she said, they may have a perfectly reasonable position, and then they feel judged for their reasonable position mm-hmm. because I'm so fervent <laughs> in my conditions. <laughs> I'm a blazing fireball sometimes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, thinking about it through her perspective and being like, you know, I don't want to do that to people. Like, I want to be able to. Yeah, still be passionate for the things that I believe in, or the things I believe are wrong. <laughs> uh, it's it's more for the things I believe are wrong than yeah. the things I believe are right. But but I I don't want to be a factor in somebody feeling that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was just, I was just thinking about her, and also like she wanted the 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 joy of sex book to be an older version, <laughs> so that there would be pictures of people with pubic hair and you know like that that's a good thing mm-hmm. like that you want someone to not only see these like very altered pictures of a female body it's thought of and and atlas kind of mentions it almost like it's a bad thing mm-hmm. you know and it's like my parents didn't do anything about any of that for me <laughs> you know i had to come upon my feminism largely on my own (laughs) and my uh pushback against body standards and you know all sorts of stuff yeah yeah it it is really interesting because that first conversation really kind of sets the tone of their relationship as stephanie wanting to be seen as a whole person Mm -hmm. and not just as a kind of reductive vision of a mother Mm -hmm. and i can absolutely appreciate that. She's wanting to have a human-to-human relationship with Alice, which means that she doesn't have the kinds of boundaries that Alice would want between her and her mother. Just get out of the bath naked in front of Alice. Like, I think there are some things there that they're trying to show that there, there aren't these kinds of boundaries that are often seen as typical and that Alice seems to want. And I think for Stephanie, it seems like, okay, well... Those boundaries can exist between a mother and daughter, but I don't want those boundaries to exist between us. I don't want to take on this role of mother that then dehumanizes me in some ways. It makes me mm-hmm. less Stephanie, which, yeah, I think is complicated because I can I can admire and understand that desire while also seeing how that means that Alice is not getting the support or whatever that she wants from her mother figure. But I agree that watching this episode, I feel more like Alice is reverting to a young, petulant self when Mm -hmm. she's around her parents more than... Which is a real thing. Absolutely. (laughs) That totally happens with probably most of us. (laughs) And I see that more than 
Alice is having to deal with this overwhelmingly toxic situation because that's just not really, especially in relation with her mother, how that works. It, it's not what we're seeing, yeah. at least in this episode. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like it's more aimed at her mother, her, the anger. Sure, when you're a kid and your dad threatening to kill himself, that's a very distressing thing. Having an affair, not good. So it's not that Stephanie didn't do something wrong. Yeah. But him choosing to react that way and evolve the daughter in that mm-hmm. way, you know, is, is just like, that was his wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But the anger still seems, I don't, I don't know, to be aimed at Mo- Mostly at Stephanie, yeah. Yeah. What about you? What point of view do you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about Margot because we see her and Elliot together again for the first time since everything that happened with Mike. Mm-hmm. I think that we see how their relationship has suffered because of her absence. They both are kind of floundering in what their relationship is going to mean as Elliot is still hurting and doing a lot of self-destructive behavior and and trying to be literally out of his mind on drugs. When Margot has to kind of take care of Elliot, when he's asking, are my eyes are open or closed right now? Mm -hmm. Like being like, okay, yeah, that's very equivalent to when people get too drunk or take drugs that kind of make them in a headspace in which they cannot take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. You have to take care of them. As someone who has been on both sides of that with alcohol, I could sympathize with her in wanting to be there to take care of Elliot, but also being frustrated with these kinds of questions. Are my eyes open or closed? (laughs) I'm just like, this is how far you've taken yourself. And understanding, yeah, clearly Elliot is hurting right now. He's turning to these drugs for these reasons, but he's making it so that our relationship is one in which he's not fully present. And I, yeah, I have to physically take care of him. After she finds out about the Margolem, she calls him out that he's not being supportive. He's having tea with them. And he makes this comment about, you know, isn't this how we support each other? I can just imagine for Margot how she is clearly going through something really, really awful in this moment. But she probably also feels some guilt that she hasn't been there for Elliot. He clearly feels like he hasn't been supported. And their support for one another seems to be just, we are there for each other when the other one goes too far. Not really engaging with actual feelings and hurt in deep ways. Yeah, and their support for each other is like a lot in escapism. Yeah, exactly. And to enable that for one another. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you wake up after collapsing to see your best friend doing drugs with the man that literally objectified you by creating a human sex doll without your consent. You'd want Elliot to be mad at him. Exactly. (laughs) You'd want him to be telling him off, not partying. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, the other thing that I really loved seeing through Margaret's perspective this episode was how she has no time for bullshit. She comes in and, well, first off, she passes out because, again, (laughs) he's stealing her chi, but that she immediately says, no, this is a sex doll of me. This is objectifying of me. This Mm -hmm. is outrageous that you would do this. And, And I can 
also imagine that she's particularly hurt because we see Margot doesn't let a lot of people in. Mm-hmm. And when the professor said, have you had any unprotected rituals recently? She knows exactly who they're talking about. That's mm-hmm. this person. I imagine this is not the only sexual partner that Margot has had in the last several weeks if she was at this Ibiza event mm-hmm. and things like that. But it sounds like he's the only unprotected one that she had, that she did these kinds of rituals with. Which maybe means that she had some kind of deeper connection, trust, etc. for him. And then the person that she lets in in those ways is the one who does this to her. Mm-hmm. I can just imagine the rage and the pain and the hurt that comes with that. And I, I so appreciate that that's, that is what Marco communicates. There's no excuse for it. And she understands that immediately. And yeah, and that also affects how she sees Elliot's response because he should be responding the same way, but he's not. Yeah. But her final decision at the end of the episode, I think, is is really, really fascinating, too, in that she keeps the Margolem. Mm-hmm. Symbolically, metaphorically, I could see this as a kind of radical, magical form of her taking control of her body <laughs> from someone who attempted to take control of it from her. Mm-hmm. Her body has literally been copied. It has been objectified. And she is keeping that object. <laughs> she is saying, okay, well, I am in control of this object of myself, not you. And I'm going to maintain that control. You know, I'm going to, maybe this can be useful for me in some ways, but either way, like this is mine and you don't have power over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I just think is a, a really great narrative way of highlighting a character who responds to that kind of objectification and, you know, a form of sexual assault that she, again, says there's no excuse for it. She calls him out and then she takes control of her body. It highlights, I think, a lot of the strength in Margot that she has this awful, awful event happen to her that, unfortunately, the show kind of puts on the side as a humorous kind of element, yet her character takes seriously and reacts in ways that, yeah, show, show a lot of strength. So I just really appreciate Margot in this episode, and she adds so much to this world and to this narrative. Absolutely. Okay, well then let's revisit the title of this episode, Homecoming. How fitting do you think that is a title for this episode? I guess it's fitting in ways of like, Margot's coming back and Penny's trying to get back home. Alice goes back to her childhood home. You know, like, uh, there, there is this returning home sort of situation. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I think they could have done better. Agreed. Yeah, I think that they are trying to have some of that wittiness there in the title. I, in I think the spell? That, is that what the spell is called? Yeah, Home exactly. <laughs> I think I think they're, they're trying to make that same joke uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with that, that word, but I think that just the term homecoming in our society is so related to high school. Mm-hmm. I Football think, games and exactly. dances. It, and, it just yeah. doesn't feel like it connects to that. Like it, it feels overshadowed by that connotation more than these narrative beats that are happening here. So like, I, I think I can see what they were trying to do, but I don't think it accomplishes it as, as well as it could. Mm-hmm. Solid, mm-hmm. solid B minus. Okay, well, what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we are going to be watching episode 11, Remedial Battle Magic. 
where Quentin and friends find even more destructive ways of suppressing their emotions. Okay, well, that's going to wrap up this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, or our Patreon in the episode description. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!